The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. You know, we're going to be in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 3, and make our way through verses 7 through 12. We're going to reference the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. The title of our Bible study is Already Not Yet. Already not yet. Already Jesus has died for our sins, conquered the grave, death, and the kingdom of darkness already, but the realization is not yet. From time to time, uh, officiate a memorial service perhaps here in a mortuary, and the family will ask that we will accompany them to the cemetery where we will share a couple of words typically about the resurrection or from Revelation chapter 21. And there are times that I am reminded that as the family is grieving, and rightfully so, and mourning, sad at the loss of their loved one, that I almost feel like at the conclusion we need to stop and say, this is not the end. This is not the end. There's coming a day when Christ, our King, will return. And we, all who are in Christ, will be raised. This is not the end. This is, if you will, a pause in the story. This is a a comma in a sentence. But Jesus has promised that he will return and we will be raised physically from the dead and that we will meet with him in the air. So in some ways, the kingdom of God is already a reality. It is a reality as we gather here tonight, as a reality as we worship, as we uh, study the word, as we take communion, even as you fellowship. The the kingdom of God is already here, but it's not here in its fullness. Our takeaway tonight is the kingdom of God is both present, that is right now, and future. It is both present and future. As we make our way through our passage tonight, It is important to remember that Mark's gospel records the coming of a king. The coming of a king. The coming of a king unlike any other king who has ever come before or who will ever come in the future. I know recently with the passing of the queen, there was a transition, and now we, well, not us, but, you know, England has a new king. But I'm telling you that there is a king came and a king is coming again. Think of Jesus' model prayer from Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, where he tells his disciples to pray in this way. And this is just one sentence out of that prayer. He says, your kingdom come, speaking to God, our Father who art in heaven, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is God, your kingdom Your rule, your sovereignty, your authority, your power, come to this planet. Make things right. Make things the way you desire them to be, not only in this planet, but also in my heart and my life. God, you come. You come into this world. See, Jesus' ministry is the expression of God's rule in a fallen world. See it as outposts in a fallen world where life is beginning to surface and life is beginning to flow through humanity, through his creation. 
I want you also tonight to see God's, man's redemption as the result of God's intervention in human history. Man was hopelessly lost, and God's response was to come into man's world, to become a man and to enter into man's world. There's three things I want to highlight. The first is God's truth. When Jesus came, he made God's truth or God's word He taught it and he explained it in such a way that we're told that the common man could comprehend, could understand. More importantly, the common man could apply God's truth to his life. Secondly, God's power. Whether Jesus was walking on the water or healing an individual, we see God's power in the miraculous. Again, God's kingdom come. And then thirdly, God's authority. Each and every time we see Jesus, and there were more than what we have in the pages of Scripture that this would take place, but when we see Jesus deliver individuals from the oppression of evil or demonic entities, we see God's authority, God's truth, God's power, and God's authority. And I need you to know something tonight. We are just as much in need of these things as first century Israel. On the screen, you're going to see a verse from Luke chapter 11, verse 20. These are Jesus' words to the religious leaders who were challenging his authority, and he said to them, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If you're able to watch and to see the power of God deliver individuals from, from demonic power, then Jesus told them, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. In some ways, the results of Jesus' ministry is reminiscent of Eden. So in Eden, there was no sickness. In Eden, there was no oppression. And in Eden, there was, up until the time of man's fall, there was no lie. And so when we see Jesus' kingdom coming to earth, we are reminded. We're not there yet. We're heading that way, right? Book of Revelation. But we are reminded of what life was prior to man's fall. Again, all through the ministry of Jesus. His presence confronts the kingdom of darkness. In fact, Mark's readers are presented with the choice of either receiving or rejecting Jesus as their king. We use the word Messiah or anointed one. We use the word Lord, Savior, Redeemer. And many of us have made the choice to receive him and to take him as our king. And some, that we, some who we know have not. Now, I, I want to shift to our story here tonight, these five verses. Currently in our study, Jesus' popularity is soaring. Uh, it, it will be evident by the increasing crowds. As a matter of fact, the picture of Jesus is that he can find no rest. Wherever he goes, the crowd pursues and follows him. Again, his popularity, especially with the common people, is growing. The religious world at this time had closed the doors for for an individual to think that they would ever be accepted by God with their traditions, with their rules and regulations. But the rabbi from Nazareth comes and opens the doors wide, and people respond. People have ignited in their hearts and their minds that there is the possibility that God will receive them 
because God is with them. Remember what the angel said, Emmanuel, God with us. And I want you to have that idea in your mind tonight, that God has opened the door wide for you to come to be with him. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4 that we are to come boldly before the throne of God, come boldly before the throne of God that's stained with grace in our time of need. So my friends, I don't know what you're going through tonight. I don't know what you're experiencing but Jesus reminds us to come. Speculation is that he is about to set up an earthly kingdom. And I always find these, if you look back on human history, I, I don't know what comes into a man or to an individual, a woman's into an individual's mind when they want to establish a kingdom of any kind. And, 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 and we might think of a, you know, a kingdom you know, like Rome or Greece or Egypt or Babylon or Syria, but, but what we have are people speculating is that Jesus has come to establish a kingdom, and in their minds, they're picturing a kingdom not unlike King David's or King Solomon's kingdom when Israel was at its pinnacle. That is why many are following Jesus because of this speculation of this earthly kingdom. Hear this. They want a kingdom that mirrors monarchies of old. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, oftentimes a king was looked, like, looked to as a shepherd. Even religious leaders, priests and prophets, were viewed as shepherds in that they cared for people. And I think this illustrates how much we desire to have Jesus as our king. But monarchy, monarchies of old were where political rivals were erased, where ideologies were enforced. Blood on the edge of the sword kind of stuff. Might and power. That's what the world thinks of when it thinks of a kingdom. Historically, people desire to join the winning team and to follow or pursue a victorious king. Few, if any, understand that prior to the throne for Jesus would come across. Let me, let me, let me tell you again. Prior to Jesus' ascending to the throne, he would ascend a cross where he himself would pay the ultimate price for his people. That the blood spilled would be that of the king himself, and that the battle that he would fight would be spiritual in nature with eternal ramifications. Keep in mind, too, that, that the enemy that was defeated was a rebellious angel, and Jesus' victory breaks the power of the curse. But regarding the crowds, listen, regarding the crowds, Jesus is unfazed by what you and I would call popularity. Jesus is unfazed by the likes and the follows. Jesus is unfazed by those who carry his name upon their lips. He is not affected. John's Gospel tells us why. On the screen you'll see John chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, think the miracles, 
that he was doing. And this is where the insight comes in in verse 24. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus' selecting of the apostles. And I just find it so interesting, these individuals that he would select. We'll talk a little bit about rabbis choosing disciples to follow them, and we have to some extent. And it says that he goes up on a mountain that he prays, and after he prays, he chooses 12 men. And I love the transparency of Scripture because from time to time, the Scriptures reveal their weaknesses it reveals when poor Peter says the wrong thing at the wrong time. And yet Jesus selects these men. And one of the reasons he chooses them, I believe, I'll talk a little bit more about it next week, is because of the corruption in the religious system. Jesus raises up men, fishermen, tax collectors. He raises up men to serve as leaders within his kingdom. You know, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I want you to know as you sit here very patiently that Jesus has selected you. He selected you, but Danny, if he only knew my history, he knows. But Danny, if he only knew what I did last weekend, he knows. (laughs) Danny, if he only knew the blunders that I've made in my life, and Jesus chooses you. Part of the reason that our king ascended a cross was to forgive us of sin. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, and to give us an opportunity to be a new creation in Christ Jesus. If you don't know that or believe that tonight, please drill down. He has made you a new creature. I think one translation I read many years ago says, and he has made you a new species. You are born again. You are born from above. Jesus understood that the people are fickle, that they change like the weather. And as I was coming in tonight, I, I, over the last couple of weeks, and my, my car has the, the temperature that's on the outside. It doesn't matter whether it's accurate or not. If it says it's hot, I feel hot turn on the air, and if it says it's cold, I feel cold, turn on the heat. I didn't turn on the heat tonight. But when I arrived here, I thought, oh my goodness, I could use a sweatshirt tonight. You see, the weather changes, doesn't it? And people change. Jesus knew the people. And so it says that he did not entrust himself to them. Can can I remind you of something else? In that that event that we call the triumphal entry when, when Messiah, Jesus, would, would present himself at Jerusalem. There would be those who would, pilgrims, I believe, who would come out of the city and greet him on the Mount of Olives, and those who, too, were traveling to Jerusalem in order to observe the feast. And, and you know the story. They would begin to lay down their garments and, and snatch the branches from the trees, and they would begin to yell, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, at the conclusion of that week, At the very conclusion, at the end of that week, there would be another group. I don't believe it's represented in the first group, but there would be another group. Early in the morning, 
yelling at the top of their lungs to a pagan governor, crucify him, crucify him. You see, my friends, crowds are wonderful. Crowds are wonderful, but they're also vulnerable to change. On the screen, you'll see a quote by D.A. Carson. It says that when Jesus said the kingdom was at hand, he not only meant it was impending, that is, that it was here, that it was coming, he meant that he himself is king. He himself is king. Well, let's go ahead and get into this. We have the Galilean ministry continuing. We've been in Galilean ministry for quite some time. Before I get into this, I do want to say thank you to Pastor Jared Burke, who covered for me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I think he did a wonderful job in just talking about the Sabbath and the man with the withered hand. And, and so now we're going to move on from that scene and verses 7 through 12. We have Jesus in the crowds. Jesus in the crowds. Jesus in the multitudes. Jesus in this, listen, listen. Jesus in what from time to time the Bible describes as the sea, the sea of humanity. You see this represented in Old Testament prophecy as well as in the book of Revelation as these different beasts, as these different representations of nations and world leaders come out of the sea. It's represented of the crowds or of humanity. Well, let me read to you here where it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. That is, because the religious leaders and the, the, the Pharisees and the Herodians were plotting his murder, he, he pulls away. He goes out to the sea. He looks for a retreat or a respite. And a great crowd followed. And then Mark's going to tell us where this crowd came from. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard of all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat. The idea here is that it's a very small boat, maybe like a dinghy, uh, a boat ready for him because, listen, because of the crowd. Jesus felt like he may become, it may be dangerous for him because of the crowd, the volume of people. And then the end of verse 9 tells us why, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases, all who had weaknesses pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits, this would be demons, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, that is within the person that they were oppressing or demonizing. They would cause the individual, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. This is a declaration. Verse 12, and we'll close there. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, now Mark provides an overview. This is a summary of Jesus' ministry by drawing attention to its scope. You know, we we read some regions here. We read a couple of cities. and, And so it's the scope. You need to know that no time in human history, especially in the ancient world, did the these kind of numbers of people pursue any single man on their own. People who weren't forced, people who weren't in any way manipulated. These people are coming to Jesus on their very own. There's no philosopher, there's no king, there's no other individual where you will see what we are reading about tonight take place. 
And you know, one of the unique things, or one of the very special things in the years as I've looked at, like the Azusa Street Revival or the um, Welsh Revival or some of these other revivals, is the volume of people they gather together to worship God. And some, some come and they're, they're saved, and some come and they're healed, and some come and they're delivered. That Jesus said that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. And I think about it in our personal lives, that when we lift Jesus up, when he is the focus of our life, that we become like lights in the darkness. And, and rather than saying, the world is bad, the world is bad, the world is bad, we become lights that lift Jesus up, and those who are in the world are drawn to him. I was 16 years old. It was summer, and I had a job with a, a, a cable company, and we were going into uh, older neighborhoods, and we were putting in conduit through which they would run the cable for the television uh, uh, company. And I remember there, you know, I was a, a laborer. All my life I've been a laborer. I know shovels well. So I was a laboring. And, and they had put me in a young man. He, and, and he had longer hair and a beard. And, you know, he, it was from that time, right, the late 60s and, and early 70s. And, and I remember that we sat down to have lunch. Now, no, no supervisors around. No, 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 no. We, they had put us out there, and we were given a job, and we were working. And we were each doing our job, but we each grabbed our our, 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 our lunch pail, and we sit down, and, and, and I'm eating, and, and, and he starts to tell me his testimony. He starts sharing with me how he had been involved in a, in a, in a very negative lifestyle, doing very, very troubling things, and how somebody had shared Christ with him. And, and I'll never forget it. It was, it was the last thing I was interested in, but when he started to talk about how Jesus had changed his life, I stopped eating, which is miraculous in and of itself that I would not eat. But he lifted Jesus up. He put nobody else down. He lifted up Jesus in such a way that I desired Christ. And I remember that it was the quickest half hour that I've ever experienced because I was enamored with his story. But let me tell you something more than that. I was not only enamored with the story, but the power of God working in his life. It gave me hope that I might be able to be saved. My friends, what does the world hear from us? Does it hear us talking about a Savior who in all certainty will return and establish his kingdom on this earth? Do they hear about how he's changed and transformed our lives and delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his precious Son? Or do they hear us arguing about things that really don't matter? So Jesus draws people. See the significance here of the distance people travel to see Jesus. No cars, no bicycles, no, no means of transportation. They walk to see him. Oh, maybe they, they have a horse or a, a donkey. When we see the words Galilee and Judea, we understand these are regions, and it's one way of saying all of Israel came to see him. In the same way that when John the Baptist was baptizing, it said all of these regions, people from these areas came out to see John. 
Jerusalem obviously is the capital of Israel. Idumea was a region that was south of Judea. It was populated, Genesis 36 tells us that it was populated by the descendants of Esau. And then we're told that some people, some folks came from beyond the Jordan. This would have been to the east, far to the east. In the arid region, there were people who would come across the Jordan River. Not unlike the children of Israel when they came into the land initially. Across the Jordan River, an area that was called Perea. It's where both Jew and Gentiles lived together. Then lastly, there was Tyre and Sidon. And this is significant because these two cities were... Were, were cities on the Mediterranean coast, and they were primarily Gentile. No, it's more than that. They were primarily pagan, idol worshipers, but they heard about Jesus. Listen, they heard about Jesus, and they laid aside their idols, and they made their way miles after miles after miles to see Jesus to see Christ. We're going to talk about why in a minute, but I want you to see the scope of his ministry. Conservative estimates are that there are tens of thousands of people. It's, It's a migration, if you will, coming to see Christ. When thinking about his ministry and its impact, I want you to remember that it happens in the course of three years, three very, very short years. There is the initial beginning where few know about him. Now, again, we're in this popularity. And each and every time he comes to Jerusalem, people are looking for him. Some people are looking for him to see a miracle. Some people are looking for him because they're looking to find fault with him. But many of the common people are looking for him to hear him teach and to see him again Their anticipation is that Messiah will be a political leader. One more thing before we move on. I want you to think about the time that Jesus came into the world. This is very much during what is called the Pax Romana, or 200 years of Roman peace. Rome ruled with an iron fist, meaning that war was rare. Also, scholars tell us that the Roman system of roads these roads that they paved, some roads that even exist today. Isn't that amazing? Especially when you drive in my neighborhood, man. Our roads in my neighborhood, they're not going to last for, you know, thousands of years. I mean, the potholes right now, I mean, I think we're going to have to get one to a four-wheel drive a vehicle. But you know what I mean? Their roads help people travel from one part of the Rome, uh, Roman Empire to another with relative ease. One last thing is that The common language of the time was Koine Greek. It was called Marketplace Greek that almost everyone understood and spoke on some level, making communication. So so you have the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. You have have the Roman road system that Paul would use and, and many of the others who spread the gospel. And then you have the Koine Greek language that made it easy for people to communicate. These factors allowed the message of Jesus to spread throughout the known world. In verse 10, we're told that the result of Jesus healing people meant that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. The volume of the people that we're talking about, the number of the people that we're talking about, 
generates a logistical nightmare. And the only place that Jesus can find to minister to these people, now, I, I don't know how he did it, is it's a seashore. It's not a large sanctuary. It's not Solomon's porch. It's a seashore. And there they gather, and there he ministers to them by teaching the word primarily and then ministering to their needs. Now remember, the reason they're there was because many of them needed to be healed. I, I think this speaks to something else, and that is they knew he was willing to heal. That Jesus even wanted to heal. Remember the woman with the issue of blood? Luke tells us that she had spent all of her money going from doctor to doctor to doctor, and none of them were able to help her. And yet these people that were sick knew that Jesus was compassionate and would heal them. And so they pursue him. They look for him. I want you to think desperate. Unpredictable crowds. The scene borders on chaos. If needed, a small boat served as an escape plan for the crowds. Why? Verse 9 tells us, lest they crush him. The original language is lest they, listen, unless the crowds fall upon him. And he tells the fishermen, have that small boat ready just in case. And he turns around and he ministers to the people. He turns around and looks into people's faces and speaks to them one person at a time. One person at a time, one individual, one story at a time. He doesn't rush across the stage pushing people over. He looks in their eyes and he ministers to them one at a time. Beyond the crowds, Mark notes the presence of spiritual predators. I want you to think corrupt, fallen angels whose intent is to control and to influence the people. In some cases, demons cause their victims to practice or give themselves habitually to sin. It is, in my mind, Satan's attempt to take man who's created in God's image and to degrade him, to degrade her, to mar God's creation. That is the desire behind evil. That is the desire behind these fallen entities, these hostile, angry, evil entities, these demons. It is important to see Jesus' presence as an assault on the kingdom of darkness. Verse 11, let me read it in its totality. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, that is, whenever they studied him and scrutinized him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. In the gospel, accounts of demon manifestation is common. I believe that this is because Jesus is plundering Satan's kingdom. He's coming into Satan's territory, and in the same way that he would use the parable to describe his work, he would come in, he would bind the strong man, I believe ultimately at the cross, and he would come in and he would save human souls. He'd come in and he would deliver them from the power of darkness and rescue those who were perishing. This is the heart of God. 
And this is what we see taking place during the Galilean ministry. The word unclean suggests something that renders a person impure. Some translations, maybe your Bibles, say evil spirits. My friends, I want you to see that heaven has come to earth. The king's authority is witnessed in his command for demons to be quiet and to leave. There's, there's, really no, there's really no option. This isn't necessarily a battle. He comes in, they manifest, he says, you be quiet and you leave, and they obey. They have to obey. Because who we have in Jesus is God. Who we have in Jesus is Lord. And the individual who they dominated and degraded comes to their senses. Remember the demoniac. It says they come to their senses and they possess their right minds. The kingdom of God is here. They acknowledge his identity when they say you are the son of God. They knew Jesus to be Messiah. This is intellectual knowledge. This is not relational knowledge. They knew who he was. In fact, Jesus silences them, tells them to be quiet, not wanting them, these demons, to be the source of revealing his deity. In Acts chapter 16, we read the apostle Paul's dealing with a demonized girl. In verse 16 of Acts 16, it says, And as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. We, modern terminology, we would say a medium, a spiritist. And brought her owners, again, she's a slave, much gained by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, you know, it brings me a little bit of comfort because from time to time I get greatly annoyed. But anyways, he's greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, didn't say to the girl, said to the spirit, said to the demon who was using her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. The gospel assumes, you know this, the gospel assumes the existence of two kingdoms, one evil, one holy. Spiritual oppression was as common then as it is today. Spiritual oppression is, was as common then as we read in the pages of Scripture, and my friends, you better believe it is as common today. And Christ's church, through the message of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, has authority to help people be released from the oppression of darkness. And this is true. This is true. That in the name of Jesus, an individual can be set free from oppression and influence. First century exorcists would use various incantations to attempt to re get relief for their customers. Yes, they, were paid, they paid for this. Jesus brought deliverance through a command. In Acts 19, we read of the seven sons of Sceva, 
who attempted, they attempted, they tried, didn't get it done, but they attempted to deliver a man by saying, this is what they said to the demon, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And the demon replies, Jesus, I know. This this would have been scary right now. This would have been where I would have been looking for the door. Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize, but who are you? Interesting to think that the demonic world knew of Jesus and it also knew of Paul's ministry. But unfortunately for these itinerant exorcists, the spirit then went violently M-M-A on them. Keep in mind that demons are in, have an intellect, they're intelligent, and they're theologically sound. In James chapter 2, verse 19, you're familiar with this verse. You believe that, there is, that God is one. I believe this is reference to the Shema. You believe, you understand, you pray that God is one multiple times a day. You do well. That's good. Even the demons believe and shudder. And I believe that the reason they shudder is because they anticipate the coming judgment. They are defeated, but they will be judged when Christ returns. Almost done. Hang with me. Now listen, the Bible tells us that you and I have Jesus' delegated authority. Satan is defeated, but the finality of his judgment is yet to be realized And as we wait, we are to look at the screen, James 4, 7. We are to submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, that is, his lies and his temptation, and he will flee from you. Again, the authority that you have, the authority that I have, is authority that Christ has given his followers. I use the word delegated because it is not an authority that originates in ourselves. It is an authority that originates in Christ. We close with a thought on the kingdom before we take communion. So make sure you have your elements ready to go here. We close with a thought on the kingdom. In some ways, the rule of God is present in the world today by the presence, the Spirit's presence in the church. That is, listen, the Spirit's presence in you. The Spirit has taken up residency within you, and so then you are representative of the kingdom of God wherever you are and wherever you go. And as you share the gospel with others, as you elevate Christ, as you lift him up, the kingdom of God is present. I've told you before. I I put a smile on my face so you don't feel like I'm scolding you. God is always present. We don't have to usher him in. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. If I go into the heavens, you're there. If I go down into Sheol, you're there. We understand that. But when we turn our hearts towards God and acknowledge his presence, we are transformed. We are changed. We do so in prayer. We do so in worship. We do so in fellowship with one another. We do so when we read the word. We do so when we take communion. We are turning our hearts and acknowledging God's presence in such a way that our lives aren't, I'm trying to be better, I'm trying to be better, I'm trying not to sin, I'm trying to do more, I'm trying to do less, I'm trying to do this. I'm try- we sit in his presence and he changes our heart. And as he changes our heart, many of these things simply fall by the wayside. It, but there are other ways in which the kingdom of God is future in that it will be seen in its fullness when Jesus comes to rule and reign on this planet 
And I don't know about you, but I'm ready. In Luke chapter 17, again, Jesus is engaging the Pharisees. Verse 20, it says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And I believe that he was speaking of himself. His presence among them represented the kingdom of God. His presence in you now represents the kingdom of God. Currently, there is no measurable border or boundary to God's rule. There's no capital city. There's no currency. He rules in the lives of his people. His kingdom expands as the gospel is shared and people receive Jesus as their king. But there is coming a day when the king will return and establish his throne on this planet in Jerusalem. Until then, we worship and obey the king that the world cannot see, but to whom they will one day bow before. Let's go ahead and prepare to take communion now. I want to read to you from Mark's Gospel. Chapter 14. Before I do, I'm going to pray. Lord, I just want to pause and pray before we come to what is oftentimes called the Lord's table. That as we sit here tonight and, and as we prepare to take the elements, the, the bread that is symbolic and representative, Jesus, of your body, and the juice that is represented of your blood, we tonight remember, Lord, that you chose to become a man, that you chose to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus, for us, for our great need, your love is represented in that you would lay down your life, that your blood would be spilled, that your life, for the life is in the blood, your life would be poured out for us. The scripture says, as an offering. And so tonight, we pause our hearts, we turn to you. Almighty God, we turn to you and we say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, our King, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our Messiah. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.